inordinate amount of our time and energy obsessing about, thinking about, resenting, um, mm. you know, ruminating on shit that's completely outside of our control. Yep. And the Stoics are basically saying, and this the message of the book is like, it's actually a huge competitive advantage to z- to zoom in only on what you do control. What's up, everyone? I'm Paul Rabel, pro lacrosse player in New York and with Team USA, also an entrepreneur and investor, and more directly, the host of this show called Suiting Up Podcast, where I delve into the stories of some of today's leading athletes, entrepreneurs, entertainers, and authors, interviewing them and unpacking the psychology of their success and the toolkit by which they get there. Today's guest, when he was 19, he dropped out of college to apprentice under Robert Greene, the author of The 48 Laws of Power. He later went on to become the director of marketing for American Apparel, where you might have seen some of the controversial campaigns he was a part of. And then he opened his own creative agency called Brass Check, where he's advised clients like Google and Complex, as well as prominent best-selling authors like Neil Strauss, Tony Robbins, James Altucher, and Tim Ferriss. He was also Tim's podcast guest on the fourth ever show of The Tim Ferriss Show. He's the author of six best-selling books, including The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, The Daily Stoic, and Perennial Seller. We discuss all these on the show. The Obstacle is the Way has been translated into more than 20 languages and has developed more of a cult following among NFL coaches like Bill Belichick, who's been a guest on the show, Nick Saban, world-class athletes, TV personalities, political leaders, and many more. Today, our guest lives on a ranch outside Austin, Texas, but I managed to grab him for 90 minutes to talk life, business, sports, and stoicism. Enjoy easily one of my favorite episodes to date with Ryan Holiday. Happy holiday, everyone. Today's episode is brought to you by The Perfect Luggage. Founded by two friends from New York who found themselves at JFK one day with dead phones, delayed flights, and a bright idea. I usually have the former two, not the latter. And their idea was luggage with power. And Away was born. Away's approach is simple. They create special objects that are designed to be resilient, resourceful, and essential to the way you and I travel today. Their bags and accessories make the perfect gift with a lifetime guarantee and 100-day trial. So there's a perfect size and color for everyone on yours and my holiday list this season. Or you can grab an Away gift card if you can't make up your mind. Nevertheless, with all of my travel, I use Away bags really nonstop. And I can promise strong durability, but here are some additional key design features I put together that I enjoy. Number one, it's super spacious. It's backed by patent-pending compression systems. Number two, there's a 360-degree spinner wheel system, which make it easy for me to commute through airports and trains. Number three, the bags accompany a TSA-approved combination lock that's built into the top of the bag to prevent theft. And number four, there's a removable, washable laundry bag that keeps dirty clothes separate from clean ones. A pet peeve and big benefit of this for me. So here we go. A special offer to Suiting Up Podcast listeners. You can get $20 off a suitcase by visiting awaytravel.com forward slash Rabel and use promo code Rabel during checkout. That is awaytravel.com forward slash Rabel and use promo code Rabel during checkout. It's really fantastic and an extraordinary holiday gift. So thank you, Away, for sponsoring the show. So we are in our New York City studios. Not home for you. No. You're in Austin, right? I live right outside Austin, Texas. Live right outside Austin. And, and you've been here for meetings and media and stuff with your publisher. Yeah. Uh, I gave a talk at GE yesterday. Yeah. That's why I was here. Yeah. And so you're on a flight. You have a car that picks you up at 11. Wonderful to have you here. It's a great start to my day. And I want to start in this time 
capsule of of the morning and and try and just start with what is your typical routine like? Given that this is disrupted too, you can tell us a little bit about yeah. what got you here, which is nine o'clock in the morning, and then on a typical day just outside of Austin. So I, I tend to have like a travel routine and then a home routine. Like um, I'm very routine oriented, but then I've realized that if you if you get like locked into a routine, uh, then you're very you're very fragile, right? Because stuff happens. So I've tried what I've tried to expand to is like having several routines, and then I just go to whatever one makes sense given the circumstances. So when I'm at home, I get up at like uh, 6, 6.30. I take my son for a two to three mile walk. I live on this farm. So we go on this sort of long walk on these dirt roads. And then I come back and I journal. I sit I sit down and I do about 15 minutes of journaling. Um, sometimes uh, I'll give them back to my wife or sometimes they'll just sort of play on the floor around me. So I, I, I do in these three different journals, I journal in each one. Um, and then around that time that's when i just start writing i try to do i try to get up early and i try to do all my creative work in the morning as soon as possible so the idea being as a writer uh, not only is momentum super important and eliminating distractions and interruptions uh, is super important uh, but i want to get it done as soon as possible so that way so it's like let's say at 10 or 11 i've already written for two or three hours mm. the rest of the day is is just bonus like i've already won the day yeah is the way i think about it it sounds a little bit like uh, you know morning pages yes um i also have three journals i bet we have a, a different style one for me is is more agenda business based mm-hmm. Um, another is, is very personal psychology based, sort of that morning pages style, and then the other, the third is is kind of the one right in front of me where I just scribble notes. Yes, um, is that is that different for you? What is, what is your stylistic approach to your three journals? So I have this one journal that's called the One Line a Day, and it, it so it's got uh, five lines on each page for five years. So I, I've only done this for a little over a year, but this one. So the idea would be in five years, I'll be able to see what I did on every day for five years. Um, so I just write wow. one sentence about the day before. So what I did, so like a, a short one sentence summary of the day before. Then I have a, a Moleskine, like a short, a, a small one. And I write uh, how I worked out the day before. Hmm. I write one thing that I'm grateful for. And then I do sort of morning pages, just like random stuff that's just coming out of my head. Like how do I get them out of my head onto the page? Yeah. Um, what I'm working on, what I'm feeling good about, something I'm proud of, you know, just ran- random stuff. And then um, I, I wrote a book called The Daily Stoic, and then I just came out with a journal that's based on the book. And the idea being that the Stoics sort of said we should prepare for the day ahead and then reflect on how we did at the end of the day. Hmm. So there's like one prompt in the morning that you reflect on. Uh, and then uh, like yesterday was like, what's, uh, what, what do I truly own in life? Yeah. Right. So I'm sort of meditating on, I'm writing about you know, okay, basically, I don't control the things that happen to me. I don't control uh, what other people do. I don't control the weather. I don't, uh, but I control my own thoughts and my own decisions. And so, you know, I did that. I, I talked about how, how am I going to handle this stressful day? I was basically scheduled, you know, from morning till night. How, how am I going to not get rushed and frenzied and flustered by this? And then at the end of the day, when I was finished, like, how did I do? Right. So I, those are the three journals that I do. And that's my routine at home when I'm traveling. Uh, I, I sort of, I do the journaling in the morning, but I do my exercise at the beginning of the day. Cause I, I don't know how right. the rest of the day is going to go. A flight could get delayed or meeting could go longer or weather, you know, I don't, can't go to the gym. So I usually run like today I did six miles on the, um, 
on the on the Chelsea Piers, like yeah. uh, that trail. I saw you're like super into fitness. Yeah, yeah. I you're using to... Strava. You ran yeah. with Casey Neistat. I did. Yeah. yeah. I, every time I'm here, I run with him. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so I, I run usually in the mornings. Uh, sometimes when I'm traveling, I, I like to swim, but it's harder to find pools when you're not at home. But you, I run or swim every day. Are you going to be in his vlog? Uh, I've been in a couple times. I, he wasn't doing it yesterday. He wasn't doing it this time? Yeah. Well, what's your thoughts generally on, on vlogging? I think it's really interesting. I mean... Uh, Different medium than where you excel or yeah. where you've, you've, you've built your, your reputation, which is more thoughtful in writing and, and publishing. Well, if people haven't seen Casey's vlog, it's actually really cool. They've probably seen his viral videos, like he snowboarded through the streets of Manhattan. He's yeah. done all these awesome stuff. Um, it was really interesting to watch just how... He did it for like 500 days in a row or something. Yeah. Just how good he got in 500 days. Like just the idea of doing something every day. Yep. I, I think people in in the creative pursuits, quantity is a way to get to quality. And people, I think, underestimate or uh, underappreciate that strategy. Yeah. That's what Julia Cameron talks a lot about in The Artist's Way. Yeah. And and that's where I, I, I listened originally, I listened a lot to Tim Ferriss and, and then a few other folks. And you've been on Tim's pod, one of the earliest pods. Yes. That was episode number four. I was yes. listening to that this morning, actually. Yeah. So I shot you a text message. It was message. so long ago. <laughs> yeah. But, but he had originally talked a lot about Morning Pages. And then I dug in and said, okay, well, let me read Julia Cameron's book. And then the other part that she mentions is that there's a lot of utilities in it outside of just writing every morning is, is taking an artist trip yeah. uh, once a week, I think is a recommendation. Is there things that you do? Uh, with that, is that your walk every morning with your son? Or so, so the walk for me. I mean, first off, it's just very practical. Like uh, he doesn't sleep very well, so it's like if I if I take like an hour, hour and a half in the morning, then my wife like doesn't go insane, right? Yeah. Like that's like her uninterrupted sleep time. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, like I can't sit still to meditate. Like I'm not a I'm I have too much energy to really sit and meditate. Huh. So I prefer sort of like the walking meditation style. So it's like. There's no, I don't have cell phone reception on my farm, so it's like, it's, wow. it's very, I, I have it at my house because okay. I'm through like Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi, but like when I'm out, I basically don't have reception. So it's probably nice. It's, it's actually really cool. I was very stressed about it when I first moved there, but um, it's just sort of quiet and slow. Um, it's actually funny. I, I realized how easily I get into routines, uh, the, the way I go on the walk four days in a row even though it's not scheduled, I don't use an alarm clock or anything, we hit on our walk my neighbor's deer feeder. So it goes off, uh, this is like way down the road, my neighbor's deer feeder goes off at the same time every day. I I hit it exactly as it was going off four yeah. days in a row. So like you just get, I just get into a rhythm and that, that rhythm I think makes creativity easier, right? Yeah. So the, the idea being like, you can eliminate the decisions or the things that are randomly happening around you. You can get into sort of a uh, like the rhythm of life. Then the creative stuff just tends to happen, and you don't have to force it. Yeah, you talk a lot about that in another book of yours, Growth Hacker Marketing. And and just to give you an idea, the scope of this podcast is 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 I'm going to yeah, you're jumping all over the place. Talk a little yeah. bit. Well, that's how I am. That's okay. how I'm wired. <laughs> I'm going to talk about use uh, a reference of all of your books in a way that I have made sense of them, not only chronologically, but the way that I believe I process life and the way others might. So one will lead to the next. Um, and my guess is that 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 is that is part of your evolution, your growth, and and the rest of ours. But a conflict that I have, and I'm, I'm really interested, and in, it kind of makes more sense just hearing it from you versus having previously read it. Just routine being very good for productivity and creativity. Uh, 
I have been trying to parse out more time during my days to just think. Sure. One of my favorite CEOs, Jeff Weiner at LinkedIn, blocks out two hours every afternoon, like the thick of 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, just to think. Not sure. read, not write, think. And uh, because there's a lot of research that suggests that some, you know, that, that, that dynamic of, of being a creative, you almost uh, need to have no work on your plate, but then you're not making any money. And you got you to work yeah. and you got to have some project. But where, where do you land there? So for me, like I, I've said before that I have like calendar anorexia. Like, so I want as little things in my calendar as possible, <laughs> right? Like, you're so, going to throw up if you see my calendar. Yeah, like I want, I want nothing in my calendar uh, as, as much as possible. So, so that way, um, and actually I got this from Cal Newport who wrote this wonderful book called uh, Deep Work. He's actually saying the opposite. You should schedule everything is basically what he's saying. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying, that, I think this is similar to what he's saying, which is basically like the deep, it, it shouldn't be that you schedule two hours of thinking time. It should be that thinking time is the default and then you're occasionally scheduling interruptions. Mm. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. So like my rule with my assistant is that uh, basically no more than three things in the calendar, like in any given day, no more than three phone calls. Um, if there's going to be more than that, we have to explicitly discuss it. So there'll be days where like the day is crazy, but I want as little in the pot, as little in my calendar as humanly possible. So the default is that I'm doing my creative stuff. So it means I say no to lots of stuff. It means I'm sort of an asshole in that sense, but like, I want, I want t- my idea of success is that I'm in complete control of my life. Yeah. So every time, uh, and, and this might have held me back in, in some financial ways, but I found that every time I start to do really well in something, I I control less of my life, and to me that's not a reward, right? So it's like uh, when I moved here for I moved to New York after my first book came out and. It was like, I don't have time to write because there's so many things going on in New York City that seem like great opportunities. Yep. You'd be an idiot not to go have lunch with this person or not to go to this party or go see this talk or whatever. And it was like, wait, so the reward for me being able to live in Manhattan, being able to, you know, have, having written these books and is that I don't get to do the thing that I want to do? That's crazy. And so yeah. part of the reason I live in Texas and part of the reason I say no to everything is that I want Writing is what I love to do, and so I, I don't want anything to interfere with that. That makes a lot of sense. Purging calendars. I, I, I would say that I've become more obsessive with my calendar, primarily from the advice of my business partners and advisors and those who work with me, because I'm a, a lot of times remote like you, yeah. and we have responsibilities to deliver, but I haven't gotten as extreme as blocking off sleep. Yeah. But I will be preemptive and block off time and just say, don't bother me for these sure. three hours. Uh, so it ends up being, uh, now thinking about it, my, my calendar is booked with sometimes nothingness, but that, that color block makes yeah. me feel more busy than I am. So when I see the color block, I'm like, something has gone horribly wrong. How did, <laughs> how, how did I get roped into all this stuff? So I want to see like blank space. Blank space. Yeah. Yeah, that's good from a psychology standpoint. It reminds me a little bit of Warren Buffett, how you know everyone thinks, wow, one of the world's greatest investors of all time. And uh, let, let's talk about his calendar. And he goes, okay, opens it up. And I think he keeps it in a notebook and it's completely empty. Yeah. And he goes, all my goal is every day is just to consume content. He tries to read 500 pages a day. Sure. And if he has his, if he has his calendar book, then he can't do what he feels like makes him successful. In your case, probably writing and deep thinking. And it's kind of a line there. Yeah. And I think like, look, reading 500 pages a day is great. 
but scheduling in reading 500 pages, like I got to read 200 pages in this hour and 100 pages in this hour. To me, that's turning this thing that we love into like into homework. Mm. And I want to sort of, I want to be able to go with the flow a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You've talked about when at one point in your life when your work became labor. Yes. Right. And it was interesting the way you you frame that. But I, I think that the psychology component is that it is suggests that once you begin doing things that you love because you are scheduling them or feel like you have to, you're taking out that the present moment uh, of doing it because it's a part of who you are, the fabric of your being. Yeah, yeah, and and look, I mean, the there's a certain magical element to creative work. Like, where does it fucking come from? Like, I don't know. I don't think anyone knows, right? And so, I think if you try to turn it into a commodity, you're doing it a disservice in mm. some way. Yeah. So I think the routine is really important in the sense that the routine creates room for the magic to happen. Yeah. So let's start now on my wireframe. And one thing that, that jumps out at me, uh, and, and you said this during your conversation um, with Lance Armstrong, is that we're, we're all solution-based. That's how we're, we're wired to come up with solutions. But oftentimes it's, it's backwards. We, we come up with a solution or a product, whether you're in business or sports, or you come up with a style of play. And then you try and find a problem to, to kind of squeeze it in as, yeah. as you know, a, a round peg in a, in a square hole. And, uh, or it would be the opposite. I can yeah, fit I think the round peg. Thinner, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's how that works. <laughs> so, so you like to look at a problem first. And, and you use an example even in, in growth hacker marketing where the, the Amazon employees, when they launch any new product, they have to come up with a PR strategy first and then a fact sheet. They have to write a press release, basically. So it's like, imagine it... it, it it's like think of the end first, right? Yeah. Like think of this actually coming out. So uh, it sounds with, like we're splitting hairs. Why is it so important to to identify problem before solution? Well, so this happens with books all the time, right? People go, "Here's the book I want to write." Then they write it, and then they go, "How will I get people to read it?" Instead, they should go, "What do people want? Not what do people want to read, but what is a book that doesn't exist that should exist? That's what I'm going to write." Mm. So it's not splitting hairs. It's thinking, okay, like. Uh, the, the people who wrote What to Expect When You're Expecting, they weren't going like, oh, I love pregnancy. Let's write a book about pregnancy. They were like, what do, you, what do you need to know when your wife gets pregnant? What do you need to know when your son uh, is, you, you know, your son's family is expecting? What do you need to know? There's no book for that. So it's, you start with the problem and then you come up with a solution. The worst position to be in is to be a solution in search of a problem because it's never actually going to be a fit. You're trying to jam this thing in there so i'm uh i'm always looking for pain points and then i want to be the solution to that pain point yeah it 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 really resonates with me in sports when when you look at teams and what i see a problem in 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 way of strategy you don't look at as a coach you know the the wealth of talent that you get on your roster that's certainly not problematic you could say well our problem is how are we going to potentially address winning a championship but many teams in all sports, with their coaches and their style of play, they have their solution, and that being their strategy, and then they try and force players that they've recruited or drafted to fit that strategy versus saying, and I think Bill Belichick does this really well, every year, and that's why they've maintained prominence, he has a different set of receivers and linemen and defenders. Tom Brady's been the constant, so he knows he can throw. But they change their schemes, bring in different coordinators based on the talent they have. They don't say, this is the way we play our brand of football, and you're going to learn to do it. And think about in sports, 
how many teams are structured that way. Sure. Even for a long time, you look at the Duke Blue Devils and like their style of play was this and the Carolina Tar Heels was that. And I think in sports, similar to what you're saying is, is like, look at what you have in front of you and then figure out what the best approach is to success. Well, I mean, you could even maybe argue with Phil Jackson. It's like, look, I'm the triangle offense guy, and it works in two cities. Yeah. And then the third city, it doesn't work because the style of play doesn't work really for the modern NBA anymore. Yeah. Maybe it does, but it didn't work there. With his talent. Yeah. But And, and maybe the, the, the other sports equivalent would be to go, the, the coach or the GM is like, I'm just going to go get as many talented people as possible, and then I'm going to figure out how to make this a team. That doesn't work either. So... Um, as, as a writer, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, uh, if, if we're looking at the Venn diagrams, it's like, here's all the things I'm interested in, and then here's all the things that the, that the public is interested in, and then they overlap, and then in the center of that dot is like, what are the things that people are going to pay for and talk about and, and will be urgent and important? And so it's like a very time, like, there's many things I, I could personally be interested in writing books about. But are they the best? Is that the best use of two years of my life? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like the entrepreneur goes, oh, I want to scratch my own itch. But that's not a sustainable business, right? A sustainable business has to be, oh, my God, 10,000 high net worth individuals have this same itch. Yeah. Or 10 million uh, low margin customers have this same itch or whatever it is. You got to find where, where your interests and the public's interest and purchase intent overlap. And that's where it's really important to have some type of pragmatic line of thinking of, okay, what, what, is my, what do I want for my career? What do I want in way of how do I define economic prosperity for myself, for my family? Sure. And that has to play a role, no matter how artistic uh, someone is and creative, they want to lean into to writing a book on, on something that, that, that people won't purchase or not be interested in. And there's some point you have to draw that line. Yeah, you have to know uh, what are you trying to, what is, I, I, the question I always ask because my company advises lots of authors and entrepreneurs and creative people, it's the question I always go, it's like, what does success look like for you here, right? So sometimes success is a million copies of a book. Sometimes success is a company that employs a thousand people. Sometimes it's the, you know, that 1% of that, right? And so you have to know what your personal success is. And then we have to go, does is what we're looking at here likely to achieve that kind of success, right? So the sports team would be like, okay, our goal is to win a championship. Yeah. And then let's look at our talent here. Actually, that's incredibly unlikely. Yeah. So maybe our goal here is to is to make the playoffs. You know what I mean? Like you want I think you want to have reasonable goals given what you have. Um and then you also need to have a very clear definition of success because otherwise uh, I, I always think too. It's like, uh, what's your number? Like, how much money are you trying to make? Mm -hmm. You know, or what, I, the other thing I try to back out in my life is like, what does an ideal day of my life look like? So to go back to what we we're talking about, if you know, I'll get opportunities. It's like, hey, you know, we need like an interim marketing director at this company. Uh, you know, we'll pay you X amount. But it's like, wait, I'd have to you know spend six months in Seattle away from my family. Uh, showing up in an office every day, which is the opposite of what I want my life to look like. Okay, am I willing to do that for six months? Or is that the opposite of the happiness that I'm trying to achieve? And so I'm going to say no. And so if you don't have that, how do you evaluate opportunities? This, the same would be true for a coach, for instance. It's like you have a shot at X player, but if that player is doesn't make sense in your system 
or it doesn't make sense in the culture that you're creating. You need to be able to be the guy that has the fortitude to say, hey, we're passing on this complete rock star because he doesn't fit with what we're trying to do. Why do you think that as a society, we, this isn't anything novel that like we, we started by saying, identify a problem, then find your solution. Uh, what does success look like for you? Define that. Uh, how much money would you like to make to, to deem uh, yourself either um, that successful previous question or, or make your life functional in a way that, that brings you happiness fulfillment? Economic wealth will allow you to give back, et cetera. Why, why do we, knowing those questions, generally not actually ask ourselves that? Why do you think people avoid saying to myself, what do I want to do? What's my passion? I, th- I find it fascinating. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think there's a certain amount of, I think we actually shy away from it for one good reason, which is it seems egotistical, right? Like it seems somewhat egotistical to go like, no, here's my definition of success and it's better than your definition. And so I'm going to do this thing that seems crazy, right? So I think that's part of it. Yep. It's like the idea of plotting out, winning seems really hard. So the idea of plotting out the terms at which you want to win is seems strange. Yeah. Um, I also think though, uh, we, we're just doing what everyone else is doing, right? So um, we tend to go like, we, there's safety and security into just doing what other people are doing because it seems like, oh, of course, they've thought about it, mm-hmm. right? But the, tr- the truth is they haven't. Right. Um, I think there's also like a layer of selfishness that where we think, and I think oftentimes the word selfish is, is very misdefined in our society as, as something that's bad, where you know intrinsically it's about doing what, what makes you happy. It just gets portrayed in a sense of, oh, that person's selfish. Yeah. But to really focus on okay, this is the number I want to hit. I mean, data and research suggests that if you're able to define, define that number, you're far more likely to achieve it. And the number is actually like shockingly low, right? Yeah, like it's right. like, I think something above like $70,000 a year, there's no increase in happiness based on the amount of money that you make. I don't know if that, I don't know if I'd agree with that number. Right. Because um, I think it depends on where you live and yeah. what your family situation is and, you know, a number of other things. But yeah, the idea of, you know, making... Uh, two hundred or two hundred and twenty-seven thousand dollars. There's like no difference. In fact, you're probably just spending that twenty-seven thousand dollars to to to. Uh, there's a. Do you know what the Red Queen effect is? I don't. Uh, it's from Alice in Wonderland, but it's okay. basically it's like running faster and faster to stay in the same place, right? And that's yeah. where a lot of us are. And that's so, right. um, I, I, I think look, it's incredibly hard to say. For for instance, with money, it's incredibly hard to say no to money, right? Um. I uh, what was the story I was going to tell? Um, I I think it's it's difficult for people to say no to money because it seems crazy. Like I remember there was an episode of Tim Ferriss's podcast where he had B.J. Novak on, who is the one yeah. of the producers of The Office, and he's a great writer. And he was saying it's like, look, you see these actors, uh, you know, like why does Eddie Murphy, you know, do Pluto Nash or some terrible yeah. movie, right? And he's like, you. Th- that's because early in your career you see these things as like garbage movies that like uh, only someone without any artistic uh, uh, integrity would say yes to. And then he's like, and then you're in a position where someone offers you $5 million to do some horrible movie. And it actually feels irresponsible to say no. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I've, I've heard Jerry Seinfeld talk about this on, on in interviews where he's like, my dad, like he's like, let's say someone wants to pay me X amount to do some show in Atlantic City. He's like, 
my dad wouldn't say no to that kind of money, right? Like it's yeah. like, wait for an hour's work, you're gonna make X amount? Like who would say no to that? That's crazy. And, and you know, my parents were sort of very blue collar. So I feel a lot of that too. It's like, wait, someone's gonna pay me more than $1 to yeah. go to a place that I wasn't gonna go and talk to a bunch of people? Of course I'll say yes. But it's, so it's, it's really easy to see like the, it's really easy to see what you, what you gain like financially to yep. do something, but the opportunity costs are often hidden. So many mental stressors associated with doing something, even if, if there's an economic reward on the backside of it to say, okay, now I'm you know, taking this connecting flight across the country. Yeah. I would rather be doing this and that. And that's why I think even more going back to our point of identifying what your economic goals are. If you're there, you can then concede that opportunity because you know, I've opted into 70K a year. I've, I've surpassed that. I don't need to take this. Yeah. So part of it is economic definition. Going back to your original idea around why you're why you write the stories that you do, the other one is audience definition, which you know from my perspective better than anyone in in your book. Trust me, I'm lying. Um, Confessions of a media manipulator. You were able to talk about the trading up the chain notion and and what media does in way of propaganda, and you use stories from from your life as example, and so. I think at a high level, you do a far better job of explaining it than me, but the influence of media on our lives and why that was actually important at, at a meta scale for your book is like, hey, you're going to sell copies. That, that's part of it. You're going you're gonna to really uncover something that, that doesn't get discussed for an audience, and it's going to be really well received. Yeah, I'm, I mean, that, that book is strange for me, and I, I don't know how much the people in, in this podcast would care about it. It's, it was a weird book. You know, I, I wrote in 2012, basically, about sort of fake news and media manipulation. It's like one of my favorite books. And it's now... I'll tell you later, though. Yeah, why. It's, I mean, it's, we just did... I just did a fifth anniversary edition, sort of, like, updated for the Trump era, and it's it's been surreal. It's like, sort of, I was, like, predicting all this terrible stuff, and then it ended up being worse than I said. So it's been strange. <laughs> But I think from an audience perspective, one way it ties into what we were just talking about is like, if you know who you're for, then you know whose opinions you don't have to give a shit about, right? So it's like, if you know who your audience is, not only does that insulate you from being sort of jerked around by criticism, Mm. but you can also use that criticism to your advantage. So Mm -hmm. like, Trump has basically figured out that like his base is his base and they'll like when he said, like, I could walk out on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and I wouldn't lose any supporters. Yeah. He basically figured that out. And so, and the media hasn't yet figured that out. So they, they seem to think it's like, if we can just nail him on the right thing, if we can just criticize him eloquently enough, these people will finally figure out who he is, right? And so you've got, it, it's like, if I think it's also like for, part Machiavelli and like they also are just still chasing the money. Like they 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 want to turn uh, the media. They they want to turn the base, Trump's base, around, and it's the right thing to do. Uh, but th- the more they continue to talk about it and and drive his social influence in the direction that it's that it's been and that we ran off of and going. Um, also, the more eyeballs and attention they'll be getting. Sure, so, sure. I, I can't figure out where I'm where I'm landing on on all that. Even it's like, guys, either stop talking about it in general, or what, what is the solution in this case? But but um, but my point is, when you know who you're for, then you know who you're not for, mm-hmm. and those people can be used to draw attention to you and to actually yeah. motivate okay, and excite your base. Right. So yeah. it's like 
uh, for instance, like today or yesterday, he announced it was he was like fake news. That's yeah, right. He was like he was like uh, maybe he's going to get rid of some of the national monuments that Obama put in. Mm-hmm. And so a bunch of like liberals are really upset about it. And like his base likes that they're upset about it, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's he's figured out that that's a form of if you know who you're for, it's a form of insulation, uh, and it's a it's a it's an energy source you can tap into all the time, right? So. Um, the, the solution is, I mean, the, the famous line on the internet is like, you don't feed the trolls. Uh, and, and the media has not yet figured out whether it's with Trump or members of the alt-right um, or other extremists. They're just feeding the trolls over and over and over again, and they're giving them power. And uh, it, it, I mean, it's so obvious how that, that works, and they just, they're stuck in this pattern, and they cannot get out of it. He's so inside their heads that he's like, uh, you know, built a house there. And and so this is the the modern influence of trust me I'm lying. Let let's kind of go back to your some of your original context around the around your story, which is the the notion of trading up the chain and and how you figured out at such a young age to leverage small news, small media, and, and the and the way that it kind of matriculates up the ladder and it becomes such a big story that it can carry a business that in some cases doesn't even exist. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example, like a, one that's true. But uh, so my my book, The Obstacles Away, uh, started making its way through professional sports, right? And I heard from Mike Lombardi, who's uh, was a special assistant at the Patriots, is a former GM of the Browns. He read it in 2013. Uh, no, I guess it would have been 2014. Uh, in the middle of that. Uh, Patriots season. Mm-hmm. And he was like, hey, I really like your book. Can I have some more copies? I want to give them the coaches. And so we did. Um, then they end up winning the Super Bowl. But as, as far as anyone knew, that didn't happen, right? Like it's, it, mm-hmm. it, there was no attention for that fact, right? It was a true fact, but it was unknown to the world. And then I was on a podcast with Michelle Tafoya in Minneapolis, uh, and she brought it up. Like it was like a local radio show in Minneapolis where she brought it up and we talked about it. And then uh, that podcast got picked up by a Patriots blog, which got picked up by another Patriots blog, which got picked up by a Sports Illustrated article, which then led to a New York Times profile. So it's like people don't people think it's like, oh, I got to get the New York Times on this. And it's like, no, the New York Times is sitting at the top of the media chain. And then down here is social media and Reddit and Wikipedia. And then above them is, you know, specific niche blogs and then slightly bigger blogs and then industry blogs and then um, CNN and then the Washington Post and the New York Times. And it's this chain. And it's like if you're a New York Times reporter and you're looking for like a trend piece, right? Yeah. Are you walking around the streets of Manhattan going like, what's new here? You know, are you like sitting in a bar trying to eavesdrop on conversations? No, you're just browsing the Internet and seeing what people are talking about. And so that chain, like media manipulators uh, in a more ominous way have figured out, hey, actually Russia has figured this out. Hey, if we can use bots and seed things on social media, then extreme conservative blogs will pick it up. And then more legitimate conservative blogs will pick it up. And then uh, reporters will begin to dispute the news at more balanced website. And then conspiracy theorists will start talking. And so that this chain can take totally spurious information and uh and essentially launder it through the system until it becomes real like the the mic the the my book through the patriots uh and through sports that was real yep but you could see how uh 
it could have been like the janitor at the Patriots read the book and no one is fact checking through that process. Right. And so it's a scary system. And that's how, you know, rumors get started. That's how fake news gets sort of propagated through the system. That's how people end up having absurd and dishonest and dangerous, uh, you know, beliefs. Yeah. And the obstacle is the way and, and why it's so applicable to sports. And, and myself included, experienced in, in having read that and working with a sports psychologist who I think is great, his name's John Elliott, um, is that we're, we're so pattern-based and, and wired to avoid and despise failure. Uh, and then when that works its way into a play-by-play scenario, a missed shot in my case, or, or a fumble or an interception, a lot of times athletes have the tendency to ruminate and like, well, that's not what I had in mind. That's not what we prepared to do. We're unprepared. We're ill-prepared, uh, and, and there are obstacles. And yeah. and the notion of this book is, and it goes a little bit back into Stoicism that I want to talk about the Daily Stoic too, is is that obstacles are traditionally framed as problems and stuff that we didn't ex- have, and like how are we going to deal with them? The mindset of then taking that as into opportunity and saying, wow, what can happen? Now that this has occurred, I threw an interception. If you're Tom Brady, is it possible then to tackle the guy and do, and do a strip fumble? Uh, like right. that kind of mindset where you, where you change. Literally in golf, they put together a phrase called the up and down, where where like people, oh, what an up and down. He parred, you know, parred an up and down or birdie up and down, and that comes from a poor tee shot. Yeah, you have a bad tee shot. Golf is so psycholog- psychologically based that they embrace a bad tee shot and get up and down, and that's rewarded. Very few sports reward poor play, and that's a big takeaway, from, for me at least, in the obstacles away. So I, I think the essence of that book is basically the idea that, and this, is, this comes from the Stokes, is that we don't control what happens, we just control how we respond. So it's very response-oriented. It's not reactive, but it's saying, okay, uh, I took this shot. Like I ran the play exactly as I was supposed to. I took this shot. Once the ball leaves your hands, it's out of your control. So it either goes in or not, right? Right. You know, uh, it, it, if it doesn't go in, okay, what are you doing about that fact? If it does go in, what are you doing about that fact? And it's always focusing on that. What it's not doing is, you know, backing away from the three-pointer that, that you missed and thinking like, I'm an idiot. Why did I take that? Or, you know, why did the ref not uh, call that foul? Or any number of, it, it, what we tend to do, we spend an inordinate amount of our time and energy obsessing about thinking about resenting um mm. you know ruminating on shit that's completely outside of our control yep and the stoics are basically saying and this that message of the book is like it's actually a huge competitive advantage to to zoom in only on what you do control and because you now have an advantage over the other people who are not doing that and so yeah what well, it's it's going Okay, what opportunities does this present? You missed a shot. Okay, it's a rebound opportunity. It's a you know, it's setting up the next play opportunity. Um, now they're not going to guard the next shot as uh, intensely because they don't think you're on. You know, all, yeah. all these, all these. There's, there, I'm not saying they're great opportunities, right? When your mother dies, that's not a great opportunity, right? But it is an opportunity to be there for other members of your family, mm-hmm. right? Or to uh, remind yourself of how fragile life is to live, you know, every, uh, you know, uh, there, there's a number of opportunities that that presents, right? Again, yeah. not good opportunities, but opportunities. And the Stokes would say that everything that happens is an opportunity for, for virtue and excellence. Yep. And so if you just think about it that way, it really, 
it really reduces the amount of shit that you have to be thinking about in a given moment. I would say many Stoics, it's impossible to to exude Stoicism without a level of empathy, too. Sure. Because many of the things that we do in life as a product of our genogram, the way that we were, we were brought up, the way that we were parented, the, the social circles that we surrounded ourselves with, which oftentimes are uh, comprised of people that look, talk, and feel, and move like us. Um, and, and then we make decisions based on our partiality to them. And, and there's a stereotype associated with, with Stoics that they're like emotional lists. Yes. And, and it's, it's actually the opposite. From my perspective, it, it's actually, you're, you're, in, you're very in touch with your emotions, but it, the way that I'd like to think about it is you're actually trying to be as impartial as you can to your experience, step out of it, be able to look at myself and say, this is the experience that you're having right now. These are the feelings that, that you're taking in, acknowledge them, but this is your present moment. It will get better. Um, it's not per, it's not going to be pervasive. Don't personalize and make it as permanent as as we tend to do when we cope with issues. But that that stereotype is a little bit like like meditation in a way, even. Where yeah. Well, so Epicureanism we tend to think means you know like you're a hedonist, which is the opposite of what that actual philosophical school is about. And Stoicism we define as emotionless, uh, and that's the opposite of what that means. It's it's uh, Nassim Taleb had a good definition. He said it's not about the the elimination of emotions, it's about the domestication of them, right? So mm. it's about just getting them under control. So I think it's like, can I step back and see this situation with a little perspective, a little objectivity? It's like, how, think, of, think of the worst thing that's happened to you in your life and then, you know, in the past. And then almost inevitably we go, but there was some good in that or uh, but it was for the best or here's what it allowed me to do. So if we know that that's how we're going to feel in the future, why don't we why don't we get that now? Right. right? And so can I step back? And, and I think your, your point is like, um, remember that you're not the only one having emotions in this situation. Right. And so if you can focus on other people, it's a way to actually get yours under control. Yeah, and a lot of it then kind of intercedes itself through our own ego and and what and the expectations that we set for ourselves. You've worked with Tony Robbins, a uh, bunch, yeah, mm -hmm. and he says trade your expectations for acceptance, roughly around on that paraphrasing that quote. Yeah, I mean the Stoics talk about they call it the art of acquiescence, right? Mm -hmm. Can you learn to accept the things that you don't have control over, um, and that this is, and then they would take it a step further. The Stoics have this idea; it's called amor fati. Uh, which means a love of fate. And Marcus uh, Aurelius uses the analogy of uh, fire. He's like, whatever you throw in front of a fire is fuel for the fire. So it's going, okay, this thing happened, right? We're down by 22 points. Um, that's fuel for me. Like, I, you imagine Tom Brady in the, in, the, in the fourth quarter of that Super Bowl. Um, he's not upset that they're, I mean, he is upset that they're down, but he's also going, this is an incredible opportunity for me, for me to mount maybe the greatest comeback in the history of sports, yeah. right? So, so on the one hand, it's bad. They would have rather played a much better game. They would have rather played the first three quarters much better, right? right? But they didn't. So in that present moment, what does the fact that they didn't play a good game up until that point provide them? So the Patriots led to then, and all those stories that matriculated up and down led to other uh, consulting arrangements that were set up with you. One of them was with the Alabama Crimson Tide, and we were talking about it before the pod, your, your time with, with Saban alone, and then speaking to the team and him coming in sitting front row. Um, 
that that notion of of radical acceptance, um, you know, ego is the enemy, living life as a stoic, obstacle is the way. When you're addressing a team, that all makes sense to me. When you're in that moment on the field, though, because of the way sports are and, and the temperature being so high, um, I've experienced times even now this past season where where I feel I'm I'm closest to a stoic than I've been in any preceding year. But I still have to like during that game, like, wow, oh, I fucked up. That was a shitty pass. Trying to live on it, move past it. What are some some training methods that you're giving a college football player or a pro football player to say, hey, it's not enough to just comprehend it. How do I apply this daily and actually feel that in the core of myself? Well, so first off, it's it's if we want to talk about radical acceptance, it's accepting what you just said, right? So any philosophy, any insight, anything that a sports psychologist tells you or a personal therapist tells you is not some magical piece of transformative information that one, it's not like uh, you put this program onto your computer and now it's running in the background all the time. Life doesn't work that way, right? Right. So these are, these are insights or principles or sort of set points that we have to continually be trying to get back to, that we want to be trying to get 1% better at each time. So, you know, the Stoics are talking about these things as ideals and then admitting in the next sentence that they're not remotely close to living up to those ideals, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's understanding that philosophy is a practice and it's a process, not, uh, um, not an end state, yep. right? And so um, what you are doing is going, okay, that was a shitty pass. I'm upset with myself wait, let me step back. I shouldn't be upset with myself. That's wasted energy. I'm going to focus on it here instead. That is that is the practice. That is right. what you're supposed to be doing. It's like, um, and, and the Stokes talk about involuntary emotions, right? It's like uh, you and I are uh, in a cab after this and our cab gets broadsided by another car. We're going to get an adrenaline dump. We're going to be scared. Maybe we both go into shock. Um, that's out of our control. But then as, as we calm down, we're going to go, Okay, what can I do productive in this situation? How can I think this through? You know, we we are gonna we control what happens after that, right? You lose your temper because someone you know uh, punched you in the face. Um, you can catch yourself at some point. It's like okay, I'm not gonna. You, you know, a month later, you're still steaming. You hate this person. You go, I, why am I doing? Why am I? Why am I carrying this around with me? I'm gonna I'm gonna not do that anymore. So it's yeah. like. And then maybe the next time you're, you, you catch yourself in three weeks and then two weeks. And, and so it's like you're fueling this set of habits, this process that returning to this rhythm over and over again. And that is the process. Yeah. Habits and routine, going back to what we first started this podcast talking about, I feel like have been my practice for acquiring more skill, as you mentioned. You know, give you an example. I've, I have a poor word recall. It's part of one of my learning differences. I, uh, you know, I, I, I tripped over myself earlier and said, put a, a, a circle peg into, into sure. a square hole, right? Yeah. Like that, that happens because I, I don't uh, often, you know, work on those, um, what are they, alliterations? They're not really alliterations, but uh, uh, what would that be called? Well, I'm going to bungle the word, but I think it's uh, I'm I'm forgetting what it is. But yeah, there's an expression. There's an ex, there's a That's word for there's a word for uh, expressing an expression wrong. It's a malpropism or something like that. But so, I, I have it too. So I could work. I could be better. I could I could 
you know, probably manage that circumstance if I spent more time on that, which I, which I haven't yet. But what I have spent time on in stoicism is, is journaling daily, which research and studies go and show that like meditating, if you can incorporate this in your daily practice, you're far more likely to handle conflict or just really not be in conflict because you become more in touch with your emotions. So writing down your thoughts, meditating, those are ways that I've practiced specifically um, something that, go ahead. But so so here's, here's another way to think about it, because I think you want to attack it from all these angles. The other would go, um, why am I so concerned with other people? Like, you said, I have poor word recall. Yeah. So maybe that's an objective fact, like uh, yeah. you, you can't reject, but why, why, is it, why is poor and why is it a bad thing, right? right? So it's like, okay, occasionally I, I use words wrong. Like I, there's, a, there's a meme, it's like never make fun of someone who mispronounces a word. Uh, because it means they probably learned the word reading, right? And I realized, oh wait, I'm I'm insecure about how I pronounce words. Yeah. And then I realized that it's actually, most of the time I'm mispronouncing them, it is a result of a good thing, which is that I learned uh, I learned that word reading and I've never heard it out loud. Mm. And so this, this mistake, this embarrassing gaffe that I just made is actually just me learning out loud like it's it's a good thing. It's coming from a good place. It's coming from a good place. So I'm not going to judge myself. I'm not going to put opinions. Uh, I'm not going to put a, a negative opinion on top of an objective event um, that actually is probably not negative in any way. Yeah. And so so it's it's. Um, I would think about that too. Like, okay, so you you mispronounce some words. It's not like uh, you're not the president, and right. mispronouncing these words has you know uh, you know diplomatic or international uh, you know consequences because he's like, wait, did he just say the opposite of what he means? It's like, right. look, it's not the it it it's not material in your life. Maybe you want to improve it for other reasons, but it's not it's not something you have to feel bad about. And then sometimes reducing that pressure on yourself actually gives you more resources to improve the thing that you're trying to improve. Yeah, and this is partly turned into therapy for me personally, there you go. which is great. Yeah, And then that, that also goes into the to repetition or the repetitive nature of, of hearing things and saying, yeah, that's right. Like, public perception it should be far less important if, if it hold any importance at all but it, but it's it's a constant battle and a journey as is stoicism to to kind of reframe that because we're wired through the way that we're brought up and you could say the school system even in sports winning or losing you know if you if if you're not first you're last you yeah. know being the toughest guy or gal in the room being the hardest gal hardest worker on the planet like all this stuff is like striving for perfection where we're at our best, we're at our most comfortable level state if we embrace imperfection, which is what life is all about. Yeah, one of the things I talked with Sabin about, and, and he's talked about it in some interviews, which has been incredibly cool for me after, is he, he talks about the inner scorecard, right? So it's like, here's how I measure myself, right? Mm -hmm. So that means sometimes when things are going amazing, so you win a national championship, you're actually not that proud of yourself because the team didn't play the way you wanted them to play, right? Meanwhile, you lose a national championship, but you played exactly the way that you wanted to play. You did exactly what you're trying to do. You are so so having this inner scorecard allows you to not be embarrassed or feel bad or rise and fall based on again things that are outside your control. Hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. hey, I made the I made this decision with the information that I had at the time. It was a good call, and then that way I'm indifferent to the outcome. Obviously, it would be nice if I was also proven right, but I, I did the, you know what I mean? I yeah. did the right thing. And so 
that that was something with Trust Me Online. For instance, Trust Me Online came out and was sort of ahead of its time. So it's done okay. I mean, it, it, it's done well, yeah. but didn't blow up, right. right? But I was already on to the next book. And also, I knew that it was the best first book that I could have written. Yep. You know? And so that allows me to continue doing what I'm doing um, without... And John Wooden has talked about this too. He's like, look, success is becoming the best that you're capable of becoming in that moment. It's not the box score or the W or the L. Right. And and I think that's also true. It's like, look, here's what I know about myself. Here are the principles that I live my life by. People say I'm a huge asshole. I'm able to sort of endure that. If people say that I'm the best ever, I'm also able to take that down a couple notches because I know that's not true either. Yeah. Well, all, all of the, the, the links to Ryan's books will be in our show notes. And, and, a, and a big takeaway uh, for Trust Me Online was, uh, you know, I'm in the business of storytelling and creating media. And when I read that, when it first came out back in 2012, you know, the, the notion of being able to capture one story and prolong it over the course of three weeks, four weeks, isn't isn't being deceptive. It's there's also real utilities. And okay, here's we'll just take an example. Here's Paul um, doing a shooting demo, and we're going to promote that for a week using photos and some audio and maybe like a, a few video clips. Then we're going to actually launch the piece, which will last another week and it'll be really interesting. Then the next week we're going to do a behind the scenes. So leading up to it, how did you make it? Then the following week we'll do blooper reel. So it's like sure in a world where 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 we're consuming content every. Where there's more and more content, but also you know, looking at your goals and what it means to be successful. And if you're in the content business, how do you make something that you believe in, a, a piece of content, a story rich, how do you elongate that? And there was real strategy for me there. Well, look, storytelling, even, even if you're not in the content business, storytelling is very, very important, right? So it's everything. Who, who's the, who was the manager or the GM of the, of the 76ers, the one that got fired? Um, I'm forgetting his name. Yeah, but, but I just sat down with Scott O'Neill. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so he's the CEO of the Sixers. Yeah. So he, inv- he, he came up with a brilliant strategy for turning that team around. But he neglected the storytelling element of it with the people that mattered most, which would be the media and team leadership. Mm-hmm. The fans actually seemed to have gotten it, right? The fans were actually kind of on board with like, hey, we're going to be terrible, but we're rebuilding. Mm-hmm. But somehow he didn't get full enough buy-in with the other people. And so he ends up getting fired before the turnaround begins to show the results that it's now showing. Mm-hmm. And so it's understanding that hey, look, uh, these things don't exist in a vacuum. You can have the most brilliant plan in the world. You can write the most brilliant book in the world. You can build the most brilliant team in the world, whatever it is. But if you, if the optics aren't managed properly, um, if you're, the narrative isn't, if the narrative is outside your control, it could very easily go against you, right? And so people need to understand how these things work. You could you distribution could, is just as, if not more important than actually the product development or the yeah. service that you have. If you have no distribution, it's it's done. I mean, you could even argue uh, early on in his career that's this that's one of Belichick's weaknesses, right? Is that he's not he, he's so brusque and uh, almost. Uh, derisive of the media that they turn against him mm-hmm. and they you know it ends up creating a rift that leads to him uh him, it, it leads to him leaving yep. and so these uh 
it's like people who end up going to war with the media or reject it as being irre- like I'm just a football coach or I'm just a you know yeah. I'm just a manager I I do this thing it's like no we all exist in a world that is defined by and driven by media and if you don't understand how these things go you're going to find yourself uh you know, often on the wrong side of it. Yeah, and we can trend left and right often. Subtle reminders are really important to me, and you, and you actually have embedded reminders on your forearms. Yeah, I have both. Uh, I have ego is the enemy on one arm and, and the obstacle is the way on the other. The, the point being, I said this in my talk yesterday, it's like, uh, first off, there's no situation in which there's no sort of some opportunity or good that can be derived. So that's the idea. The obstacle is always the way. Uh, the obstacle is the path, is the Zen saying. So that's always true. There's no situation which is not true. And then conversely, there's no situation, there's no room, uh, there's no team uh, where someone goes, you know what would make this better? Like more ego. Let's let's bring some ego into this room. That'll yeah. just improve things. Like no one has ever said that, right? right? <laughs> and so that's the idea is like, you never want to be bringing ego into the situation. Confidence, very important. Mm-hmm. But ego is this thing beyond confidence. Um, humility would make 90% of situations better, yeah. but ego never improves them. Yeah, when we look at our scorecards, my brother, myself, a few of our other business partners, we say we're, we're entrepreneurs, mainly because we get the opportunity to choose the people we get to work with. Uh, and on our behavioral metric scorecard is always humility and integrity. And humility uh, is, is what you mentioned. The ability to even laugh at yourself, that's a pretty easy place to get to with someone and figure out if they're able to just have, if they have self-deprecation. Yeah, Eisenhower said the most uh, essential lesson he learned from his mentor is a a man named Fox Connors, which is an awesome fucking name. Uh, (laughs) uh, He said, it's always take the job seriously, never yourself, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that that is... Ego is the opposite of that, right? It says the job is serious, so I am serious, or the job is important, so therefore I am important, right? right? And, uh, and, and to me, my, my definition is that like e- it, confidence is a knowledge of our strengths and humility is a knowledge of our weaknesses. And yep. so you want a balance of the two. Ego is like um, uh, an overestimation of our strengths and an underestimation of our weaknesses. So right. it's this, it's this terrible uh, calculation that gets us into trouble all the time. I'm, I'm curious to where you land on this. This is something that I've tried to work through personally and and even uh, densely in therapy. But ego also works its way around the cycle and and can just dis- try to disguise itself as humility. Sure. And I'll give you an example. In sports, you have a great game, you get complimented on yeah. it. And you say, ah, well, you know, I it got lucky. Me, it was the team. Yeah, it was the team. Whatever, I got lucky. Yeah. And, and and then that, you know, makes its way into other moments in our life. But that's actually, it's the opposite, the counter form of, of ego in the traditional sense of where we frame it or or our own insecurity in ourselves and unwillingness to say, thank you. Like, I earned that and yeah. I'm confident in that. Yeah, so if that's com- a hard thing to do. Confidence is earned, right? Or like, I like to say, I don't have belief in myself. I have evidence, right? Yeah. And so... Uh, <laughs> This idea that you don't have ego is probably the ultimate form of ego, right? right. <laughs> and, and there are often very, there are many sort of quiet, prideful people who are sitting around thinking that they're superior to other people because they are not doing X, which is a form of like, mm-hmm. and, and and then there's also lots of really egotistical losers, right? So there's many successful people with huge egos, right? Kanye West, enormous ego, also successful. We see how it's damaging to him. But there, 
I bet his ego is dwarfed by the asshole loser sitting on his couch who thinks the world is out to get him and that he's never had a fair shot and, uh, you know, he's been set up to fail. And if only they did it his way, it would go much better. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. there, 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 is, there is that ego, too, that sort of I'm better than everyone else. You don't understand. I'm unappreciated. That, that is a form of ego as well. And, and I like what you're saying about thank you. It's like, look, just acknowledge it and then move on. Yeah. Don't, don't like double down on it by pretending that you're above it. Yeah, Adam Grant, who's a head uh, psychology professor at Wharton School of Business, talks about it in his book with Sheryl Sandberg, Option B, that that there's there's the ego part of what I acknowledge, but there's also when someone pays you a compliment, they want to be heard. Yeah, and to be like, oh no, uh, someone else. It's almost basically you're basically saying like you actually got that wrong. Yeah. you're complimenting the wrong person. You're doing them a favor by saying, thank you, I heard you, and that means a lot to me. Yeah, and look, there, I, I get it. It's like there's an insecurity. Like I would rather not think about those. I, it's easier for me to just sort of stay in my own, like like when someone goes like, oh, one of your books changed my life. That makes me uncomfortable. I'm not like dismissing it out of ego. It just makes, it makes me uncomfortable, right? And mm. so, and it also, it's dangerous for me. So I, Is that you know, because it's such a powerful thing? It's a, it's a powerful thing and it can change you and I don't want it to change me. It's like, I, I wanna, I wanna focus more on the process. So, so it's, it's a good impulse mm. often coming from, from a, it can be coming from a good place and a bad place. And you just wanna, whenever you feel one of those strong feelings, and the Buddhists would probably say this more than the Stokes, you wanna explore it and sort of dissect it and figure out where it's coming from and, and understand its essence. Don't just like push it away. Right. So we've gone through the process of, and I even sensed like, you know, trust me, I'm lying. It was a phase that, you know, it, there's, there's real utility. To it. It's, it's a really you know, important part of your life as a marketer and, and once CMO of American Apparel and doing all these magnanimous things in, in culture at retail all the way through kind of the psychology of the way we're processing thinking. But stoicism is a far more powerful part of, of what you've brought to the society as, as saying, hey, here's some of my value add to the universe and even further the obstacles away. Now more recently, the perennial seller which focuses a lot on sustainability of, I would say, the former stoicism and, and obstacles away. And like, so how do we the, then uh, create that dynasty? And we can start with sports where Bill has done a great job with the Patriots and Nick Saban, the two examples that we've previously used, as how do we create something that's great? We market it, sports are marketed just in their own unique way, despite coaches really pushing back on it. They're, they're, they're big time marketers. Sure. <laughs> and then they create the sustainable element to it. So what have you found are, are some really important pieces to accomplishing that? I mean, in a weird way, my model as a writer is like the San Antonio Spurs. Like they're just always good. They're not always the best, but they're always good. And they've been good for a really long time in a lot of very different iterations do you know what i mean mm -hmm. like uh i mean i don't even dave david robinson the from the david robinson era to the Tim current Duncan. era mm -hmm. is crazy how long that is yeah. right well sam walker who i told you about earlier at, at wall street journal who wrote the captain class and previous guests on the pod the san, Anto san antonio spurs were the 
were his qualified best basketball team of all time. Not the Chicago Bulls, um, not the Boston Celtics, and there are reasons, yeah. but 18 years of maintaining dominance in playoff and Western Conference Finals and championships and NBA championships. It was nuts. Yeah, so that that's sort of what I'm looking for. And I think as a creative, the idea of... Basically, Perennial Seller starts with a quote from uh, from a writer named Cyril Connolly, who's who's writing right before the Second World War, and he was saying he's like, "What's going to happen to the world in ten years? Like, the, it looks like the world's w- could potentially end, right?" He's looking at you know the rise of Nazi Germany, and he's saying, "In ten years, what will happen to the world?" And then he's like, "And then more sort of simply, what will happen to the books that my friends are writing right now? How many of those books will still be true, still be relevant in ten years?" And he's that to him, the mark of literary greatness was lasting for 10 years. Mm. And so to me, like, that's what I'm thinking about when I write and when I create things is like, I want it to be popular now. I want it to be successful now. But is that popularity and success right now coming at the cost of being relevant in year seven? Right. Right. You know, so it's like my as I was writing Perennial Seller, I, I had a list of examples of things that hadn't lasted, for instance. You know, I was talking about like gourmet cupcake shops and Groupon and MySpace <laughs> and, you know, uh, fidget spinners and, you know, whatever. Right. And she was like, okay, but Ryan, like imagine somebody is reading this book in Thailand in the year 2040. Like, are they going to even know any of these examples? And, and I was like, you're totally right. I need to go like deeper. I need to do more work now. So it's like that that paragraph will if if I did it in the way I initially described it it'll land better in 2017 hmm. but it will land worse in 2027 right so it's like how can I make how can I balance that out so it's more likely like how can I put in the time and the decisions to make something that that will last and I think you know coaches and 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 with athletes is the same thing it's like okay we can make a run at this this amazing player right now we're gonna have to bet the entire franchise on this guy or we can put together a system or a balance of 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 uh, of more less extreme but more attainable individuals and that that can be sustained over the course of a of a of a dynasty or a franchise or whatever and and most things that are perennial in their nature of success are usually historical based context like religion, the Bible, all the way through politics to sports and like winning championships and stuff. But philosophies, the thought ingenuity and framework, that is the real valuable stuff because that is is ideated uh, from from scratch in a way and can be applied across categories. Well, look, I mean, deciding to write a book about a proven 2,000-year-old philosophy is much more likely to endure than to make up some brilliant new one right? right like um or i mean you know more practically though it's like uh cats cats's right like there's lots of other restaurants that do what cats's does but they 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 do it well it's it's it it is what it is it's not changing it's built this core audience it's this sort of experiential place it it is what like uh, i'd i'd rather be cats's which has been open since like grover cleveland was president yeah. than whatever the number one restaurant in New York City is right now, uh, because the chances of that restaurant still being here in 10 years is not high, but you could almost bet your life Katz's will still be here. Yeah. Katz's will still be here in 100 years, probably. Yeah. So that sustainability is really important. 
I, I, I want to tie a little bit this in and get your thought on, on sports, primarily for me as, as a listener to you and, uh, and the way that you think out of the box and abstractly. So a, a, a couple of things. The first is, if you are a professional athlete, how would you uh, think about improving? And that discipline doesn't matter, whatever it is. It, do you look at sports and say, hey, maybe these gals and guys are thinking about it differently. Well, I think Tom Brady is a good example of someone who's like, okay, look, everyone is doing these things that will make them strong right now, but it might be coming at the expense of long-term durability. So he's like, I want to do uh, like more resistance workouts rather than, you know, sort of, uh, or he's looking for low resistance, yeah. right? Because that will set him up to be successful over the long term, right? Rather than like, what's the most stress I can put on my body right now to give me a 1% edge. And so I think investing in that long term thing would be would be one of them. So it's like, it, in some ways, it's like, okay, if the average career of an NFL player is like two years, let's say, that's right, maybe you don't if you want to last longer than two years, maybe you don't do whatever the conventional wisdom is yeah. because clearly it's not working. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, and I think that about that as a writer. It's like, okay, everyone says do X, Y, and Z, but it doesn't work out not only for most individuals, but even on an average level. So what is, what is the different way to do it? And, and that, that's usually where there's some insight or breakthrough. And, and at the youth level in sports, there's a ton of conversation around multiple sport athletes versus specializing in a particular sport, especially as this funnel in probably led by social media and just conversation around um, pervasively entering our lives as parents all the way down to the kids. But everyone seems to think, when I grew up, it it was like an iceberg's chance in hell that that I was going to play college sports. My dad never put that pressure on us, especially not pro sports. So we were playing for fun. People tend to specialize now because you know they want to get the college scholarship, they want to play and become a professional athlete. But playing multiple sports, it dawned on me in the way that you present having multiple projects as an entrepreneur is that you may not become the best author ever if if all you if if you're having if you have multiple projects in line away just from writing. If you focus on just writing. Maybe there's a, sl- a, a smaller chance that you can become on that fast track, but the value you get from multiple projects as playing multiple sports is you get exposure to other disciplines. Physically, you develop different skills, so you're actually, I think, raising the roof and way of upside as an athlete. You also develop more meaningful relationships, and I've heard you talk about the, the idea that I, I, can, I could never see myself focusing on just one thing. I'm missing out on developing alternative skill sets. Well, I think it's it's like it's possible to specialize later based on specific opportunities or needs, right? Like, uh, but it's impossible to generalize after you've specialized your whole life. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Exactly. So, um, I I think that that's uh, I, I think that's what I, I it's like. Someone, one of my mentors early on was he's like, look, strategy is a matter of options. So you're always should be asking does this give me more options or less options? And so Mm -hmm. it's always about preserving and creating options. And Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, my my son's one and my wife and I were already like, what sports do we want him to play? It's like, he should play everything and he should be exposed to as many things as possible. He can always sort of winnow things down as he gets older. But it's like, if at two years old, you're being like, actually all of these things are off the table for you, 
you're depriving them of a lot of uh, strategic flexibility down the road. Yeah, and if you're just working really hard head down and you're building all of this uh, thought ingenuity and, and, and you're improving as an intellectual, if you're evading the relationships, which I've found much later on in my, in my career, which is still young, is that most businesses are driven through those relationships. And playing multiple sports, building other relationships, meeting different coaches, learning about different relationship styles, same thing in business, can be super beneficial. And you talk about mentorship. You're not even finding those mentors unless you're exposing yourself uh, to different properties and projects. If you're listening to the show and you're saying, hey, uh, I want to you know, meet Ryan Holiday or I want to meet Paul Rabel if I'm a young lacrosse player, um, how do you go about doing that? And, and is there really a big ask to find a mentor? I know we try to formalize it. Well, I think um, I, I'm always... I'm always saying, uh, what's going to teach me more? How can I learn more? That's how I'm sort of looking at opportunities. And uh, it's not about like finding a mentor. It's about putting yourself in rooms or situations where you're likely to meet that person. Do you know what I mean? Um, It's like, I always say with mentors, like people think it's like, uh, will you be my mentor? But that's like walking up to you know, an attractive stranger in a bar and saying, like, will you be my boyfriend? Will you be my girlfriend? It's like 99 times out of 10, they're going to, or out of 100, they're going to be like, no, get away from me. Yeah. Right. And, and in a way, the person who would say yes is a weirdo. <laughs> like, right. like, who would say yes to that? Right. It's like the person you wouldn't Someone want to say yes. Someone that doesn't have mentees. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. And so, so um, these things are informal and they develop over time. And so it's more about putting yourself in a situation, showing your promise. And you'll find that you kind of attract these things. And then also, I would say from a mentorship perspective, it's like, okay, the vast majority of uh, the brilliant people who have, uh, the brilliant people out there have already lived and died. So it's like, why don't you first just avail yourself <laughs> to all of the knowledge that exists in the world? Yeah. You know, like, like people will be like, oh, Ryan, like, uh, I really want you to help me with this or that. And will you be my mentor? And it's like, there's so many better, like I should be your last choice. You know, like there's so many, not only better living people, but there's way better like dead people who you can just read their books for $8. You know, like why exhaust all that first and then come come to me with like specific questions. I I see that too more practically, like people go like, uh, like Ryan, like, you know, like I admire what you've done in publishing. Like I'm trying to work on a book. Like, will you help me? And it's like, uh, will you be my mentor? Like, I want to have coffee and ask you advice. And it's like, I always go like, look, here's 28 articles I've written on this topic. (laughs) Why don't you read all these first and then just come to me with specific questions? Like, what you're asking for is for me to do all the work for you. And you're not going to get the most out of it. It, It's a a weird input. Like, people want things handed to them rather than doing it. And they end up, uh, it it doesn't work. Yeah. And there's a ton of information you've put out there. I said earlier, we'll link to all those in our show notes. When we traded emails, you sent me a, an article that you wrote on James Altucher, who's a client of yours and friend of yours, on acquiring email newsletter subscribers yeah. and building out a good front-end website. Yeah, I saw James yesterday. Yeah, and it was just like really valuable. But but we, And we actually speak with our employees and prospective um, um, candidates in the interview process. And the first thing we expect is that, and it's seemingly far-fetched in today's world, that they come to the table with ideas that they can bring to our business sure. and businesses. That's how all my first job started. And it's just like, if someone sits down with us, we really could care less about experience. We care more about behavioral. 
uh, metrics. But if you have ideas, that shows that you put in work, you're curious. Yeah. And and that you're likely going to be a big value proposition for our business. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I don't even know what people want from a lot of them. I think they think they're supposed to have mentors because they heard that successful people had them and they haven't really given it that much thought after that. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, you've got to... Like, like uh, I'll give you an example. I don't mean to like knock on this kid, but a, a couple of years ago, uh, like some kid just showed up at my house. He's like, I want to ask you advice. I wasn't even home. And he'd flown there from Australia. Like he wow. flew to Texas from Australia, and which, you know, cost God knows what. And it was also really creepy. And like my wife <laughs> was freaked out. Like, why right. is there this stranger like sitting on my front porch? And uh, and and so I ended up, uh, I was like, look, I'll give you like five minutes. Like, oh, and and no joke, he asked me five questions that I'd probably answered in 50 podcasts, <laughs> right? And so it's like, he, it was easier for him. And he's probably too, uh, he probably thought this was like a big statement that he was making. He got caught up in the sort of the glamour and the, you know, it seems like a thing you would do in a movie. Like, I'm going to fly into the country and then we're going to be best friends or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know? But it was like, it, it was easier for him to fly across the entire world than to search my name in iTunes and download some podcasts. And then, by the way, if he'd flown after that, he could have asked me five questions that I'd never been asked before and gotten like real insights that were beneficial only to him. And so people, it's like people, a mentor is not a way to do less work. A mentor is a way to get expert advice on very specific situations that will give you an edge. Yeah, and, and you say it in your book, The Perennial Seller, there's no magic yeah. to success. It takes real work and thought and execution and then rolling out a marketing campaign. And I think, again, no disrespect for the guy who flew over from Australia. I mean, super ambitious. <laughs> yeah, right. Grit. Yeah. But, but you're right. If he asked questions that, that he could have found out the answer to on his, on his laptop, Right. My guess is that he thought that that whole trip was going to be the magic to whatever success and you providing a connection. And maybe he would have been better off saying, hey, can you introduce me to this person? That yeah. may be worth a trip. Well, and, and I think that, you know, I talk about, I actually think passion is like a bad thing, right? I, I think people should, I think pa- in historically- It's way overused right now. Yeah. The, and historically, the, def- the passions were things to avoid, right? Um, but hmm. it's like, I think- pa- what happened in that situation is that his passion blinded him from the reality and the perception and the way that his actions would be perceived, mm-hmm. right? So it's like the number one thing you show when you want someone to mentor you is that you're a good investment of their time. Yeah. And if you show that you're the kind of person that flies across the country before you stop or the world before you stop and do your basic research, you think, you think you've shown, look, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. But actually, you've shown me you're not willing to do whatever it takes, that you uh, favor sort of glamorous statements over uh, unsexy, nuts and bolts, tactical stuff. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think passion's overused. I, I love how Ben Horowitz in, in one of his uh, graduation speeches talked about how that, you know, don't follow, he actually don't follow your passion. Yeah. He said, try to find what you're good at and, and discover your utility to offer towards the universe. And then Scott Galloway, who's been a guest on this podcast, went long on that and also said that if you can find out that what you're really good at, develop those skill sets, 
life is going to become good to great really fast. Sure. No, I would totally agree with that. Yeah. So, so last question. Okay. All right, because I've had you here for a while, and it's been it's been really great. But we're we'll, we'll continue to pick on um, the, the the gentleman who flew in from Australia and had five questions. As you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm new to this medium, and I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, so I'm always exploring ways to to think through the conversation and the guests and topics and questions. I'm going to explore for my next guest, given how talented you are at, at uncovering uh, details and nuances in life and exploring the, the, the success from them. If you were to ask any question, you don't know the guest, you know some of the guests that I've had on this podcast that you would like to hear an answer to, what would it be? So here's the worst question that people ask on podcasts. Okay. <laughs> they go like, what's a question you've never been asked before? Yeah. And it's like, it's that, that's a good example of something that sounds profound, but it's completely meaning. Like it's, it's, it's also a setup for disaster because I, unless they're prepared to answer that. Right. The answer is, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) how can I know the answer? How can I know a question that I haven't been asked? That doesn't make any sense. Okay. Writing that one down. I hate that. I hate that question. Um, I'm always, uh, I'm always, I'll I'll tell you that the, one of my things that I don't like about business books is that, like, let's say I'm writing this, the story of, uh, you know, like Elon Musk or I'm writing the story of some successful person. They always go like, okay, they had the idea. and Like, the, to me, every business book is like, they had the idea. And then, like, two weeks later, they made their first million dollars. I'm like, what happened in the two weeks? That some transformative event happened there. What I really like about the – have you read the Phil Knight book, The Shoe Dog? Yep. What I love about it is that it's it's a full book and it stops in like 1976. Like yeah. it's a full book about like the early years of Nike, which almost always get glossed over and is actually like, you know, when they say like the first million or the first billion is the hardest, but everyone always focuses, they focus on like, here's your childhood and then here's where you were running a multi-million dollar company or like here's your rookie season in the NFL. Yeah. And it's like, I want to know, like how did you get from point A to point B? Like that, right. that's the crazy part. So It's usually some type of failure. It's some failure or it's some, you know, it, it, whatever it is, it's not explored enough. And so I always, I always think like, okay, what are like, uh, when I do podcasts, people are always like, they ask me the same like 50 questions, you right. know? It's like, tell me about your mentorship with so-and-so or tell me about how this happened. And Talk I think they would, Max. Yeah, I always say like, why or I don't say, but I wish they would. They would go, okay. Here's what I heard you talk about on other podcasts. I'm going to ask you stuff that you've never been asked before. And like, you asked me a bunch of questions I've never really talked about. And so I think, because I, I don't know who the specific guest is, I would go like, okay, what are the things that, what are the gaps in this person's story or life that haven't been explored? Because that's where there's going to be not only real insights. But also exclusive insights, you yeah. know, because like you're, you're the only one that has them. Right. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. Who is the next guest? If you enjoyed Ryan and my conversation, please be sure to let us know. In fact, let's take it over to Twitter or other social media. On Twitter, my handle is at Paul Rabel. His is at Ryan Holiday. And like most of our guests, is following substantially outsizes mine, but for good reason. If you don't already follow him. Now, be the first to listen to future episodes as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick, also our most downloaded episode. Or if you want more business, like Ryan, definitely check out New York Times bestselling author of The Four, The Hidden DNA of Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. He was also a multiple-time, is a multiple-time entrepreneur. That episode 
is with Scott Galloway. Check that out. All these are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. And please consider lending me a subscribe. Thank you. I'm bowing as I say thank you. Shout out to today's show sponsor, Away Travel. Perfect luggage for the holiday season. And everyone, that's it. This was the final interview of 2017, at least that I'm publishing. It's been quite a ride, and I'm personally very grateful for your listenership and feedback. It's been a wonderful experience. I'm contemplating dropping a most memorable or favorite moments episode sometime between Christmas and the new year for you to champ on until we get back to the typical dialogue interview style in 2018. So stay tuned potentially for that. And other than that, happy holidays, everyone.